today on Ag News Daily. The agriculture industry is getting kind of pulled in from a lot of other consumer products. You know, the, the one I always relate it to is, you know, if I damage the or crack the screen on my iPhone, I have to go to an Apple store in order to get that screen replaced. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Thursday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. I'm Dawson Schmidt, once again, filling in for Delaney Howell and joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic, Dawson. I got up extra early today. Hopefully, Delaney listens to this episode because she knows that I'm not a morning person. And whenever I have to get up early for work, she teases me about it. So hopefully, she hears this. But I woke up early this morning, went and did a workout, worked at the coffee shop a little while. So I was out of the house and it's just been a pretty great day. I think we got a, a few droplets of rain at least because when I woke up, it was pretty cloudy, chilly, and it was a little cloudy and overcast for you know the first few hours of the day. But I am doing great. I was going to ask you about that too, because it looked like we also got some rain up here in Iowa too. I noticed that the sidewalk was pretty wet and I pretty sure I heard it late last night as well or early this morning. So kind of glad that we're starting to get a little bit wetter here for the next maybe couple days. Yeah, I don't think that we have too much more in the forecast. Actually, I'm looking at my weather app right now and we don't have any, but it seems like we're going to be getting some cooler temperatures over the next few days. So very excited about that. In fact, next weekend, it looks like we're going to be in the high 80s, which is definitely a stark contrast to the hot, hot weather we've been having here in Lubbock. So we're going to be very excited about that. And we are actually getting to tailgate and go to football games this football season. So I'm glad that we won't have two extreme temperatures, hopefully going into that. For sure. And I guess we don't really do many weather updates. So that's something new. But why don't you say we get into just the regular news that we usually do? Let's do it, Dawson. And earlier this week, I want to kick things off with this because it's just a small update to this. I talked about how the Senate Appropriations Committee approved a USDA FDA funding bill that includes $7 billion in disaster funds for crop and livestock losses last year and going into this year. And almost immediately after the vote came in, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell threatened to sidetrack the USDA and other appropriations bills in a budget dispute with Democrats who, of course, control the Senate. McConnell said that absent a, quote, top line agreement on spending levels for fiscal 2022, which begins on October 1st, the USDA FDA bill and two other appropriations bills approved by the Appropriations Committee might be shunted aside. McConnell was one of five Republicans to vote against the bill. And I believe on Wednesday, I talked about how we would have a little bit more information on kind of finalizing this bill on Friday. Not too sure what the outlook is going to be, considering that McConnell said that he wanted to or he threatened to sidetrack the USDA and other appropriations bills. So I, I don't know. I thought this was very interesting, the dynamic that's kind of going on here. For sure, Ashton. It seems like a lot of uncertainty once again with different legislation that's trying to go through. But another thing that I have is that U.S. President Joe Biden is now set to sign an executive order today to that is aimed at making half of all new vehicles sold in the year 2030 zero emission vehicles. So mostly just electric, though some will include hybrid sales as well. 
he said that he'll propose new vehicle emission rules to cut pollution through 2026. And while Biden's goal is not legally binding, it has won the support of different U.S. major U.S. foreign automakers that warn that it would require billions of dollars in government funding. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says that it now is the time to act. Biden has repeatedly resisted calls from many Democrats to set binding requirements for EV adoption or the following or to the following California and some countries in setting 2035 as a date to phase out the sale of new gasoline powered light duty vehicles in the face of opposition by the United Auto Workers Union. UAW President Ray Curry noted that EV goal said it was focused on preserving the wages and benefits that would have been the heart and soul of the American middle class. Biden's new executive order will set a new schedule to, for developing new emission standards through at least through at least 2030 for light duty vehicles and as early as 2027 for larger vehicles. I'm really curious on how this is going to go through due to, you know, especially in agriculture, we rely on, you know, heavier powered, uh, at least gasoline vehicles when it comes to, you know, cheaper farm vehicles. So that's just kind of one thing that I'm listed. I'm thinking about here when that is coming through. I think that that's definitely interesting, Dawson. And right when Biden took office, he was talking about having, I think, the majority, if not all of the presidential fleet being electric vehicles. But I think that it's also important to point out that a lot of mining has to take place to kind of get together. I can't even remember. I think it's just some the materials that kind of go into making these electric vehicles because they're, of course, are a different makeup than, you know, regular gas or diesel vehicles. So I think that it's very interesting because a lot of people, you know, point the finger to climate change, but are they necessarily, you know, better for the environment with all this mining that's going on? I don't really know. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> For sure. It's definitely something that they're going to have to look into before there's some real actions being taken. And it seems like this is one thing that they're going to have to get many different perspectives from different groups on before anything goes ahead. You are absolutely right there, Dawson. Um, my next piece of news comes out of China as the country bought U.S. pork last week after being out of the market for about a month. The USDA says that China bought more than 18,000 tons of U.S. pork, the first reported sales since the week ending July 1st, as China continues efforts to rebuild their hog herd while still battling African swine fever and trying to meet trade pact obligations. China also bought a smaller amount of U.S. beef during the week ending July 29th, but total beef sales fell 33% on the week. Old crop corn and soybean export sales continued their slowdown into the end of the marketing year, while new crop sales for both were solid. The USDA's next set of supply and demand estimates is out August 12th, so we might be talking about that about in the, the next week or so. But I want to piggyback off of that story because former U.S. Ambassador to China, Terry Bramstead, says that the Biden administration needs to hold China accountable on trade. He was quoted as saying, we don't want the administration to, to trade off the progress we've made on trade in order to have the Chinese make some promise on global climate change, which they won't fulfill. We're concerned that they have a history of not fulfilling promises. Branstead says that America's farmers and ranchers greatly benefit from a strong relationship with China. According to Branstead, they have a growing middle class. They have a demand for more protein. 
and for a more safe and reliable food system. And America is the best in the world at producing that. Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts agreed with him, adding, I would hope the Biden administration would continue the same policy of competition and accountability rather than engagement previous to the Trump administration. Branstead says that it's too early to determine the effects of any changes on trade and it would take several months to find out. So I'm pretty interested on what's going to happen. I mean, we've definitely been talking about trade relationships and what's going to happen under the Biden administration. And it's just going to be something like Branstead said that we're going to have to look at for the next coming months on what's going to happen when it comes to trade, more particular, our trade relationship with China, which is a pretty important one, I would say. For sure, Ashton. That brings a lot of certainty for uncertainty for demand. And then kind of speaking of demand here, I'm going to bring it back to ethanol too, because I do have another story. So on July 2nd, there was a court of appeals decision that overturned the EPA's approval for E15 sales year round. And now the RFA or the Renewable Fuels Association came out saying that farmers and ethanol producers could lose billions of dollars if E15 sales are banned for summertime sales. The RFA released a report on Wednesday that highlighted the negative effects of a, of a court of that court ruling, saying that on July 2nd, the court overturned the EPA's 2019 approval of year-round E15 sales that would give drivers a cleaner fuel option at the pump. In its decision, the court found that the EPA extended its authority by attaching E15 with the already approved E10 volatility waiver. E15 right now is currently authorized to finish out its sales throughout this summer, but if the if the rule, new rule goes into into effect, that will ban or that will restrict E15 sales in 2022 and beyond. The report by the RFA claimed that restricting year-round E15 sales would cost billions in lost revenue for the ethanol industry and farmers. Some of the things that the report highlighted, if the newest court decision did remain, is that the cumulative E15 sales between 2021 and 2024 would. Ne- would be nearly 12.6 billion gallons lower than that would have been the case if E15 sales were to be sold year round. That would also lead to a net loss of ethanol sales of 630 million gallons valued at $1.3 billion between 2021 and 2024. A return to the summertime prohibition of E15 sales also would also would cause greenhouse gas emissions from gasoline consumption to increase by 2.3 million metric tons of carbon dioxide within 2021 and 2024. That is an amount equal to the annual greenhouse gas emissions from about 500,000 cars. The RFA said that not only will the appeals court decision have an economic impact on it, but it would also limit the ethanol's industry to be able to help reduce those emissions. Since the E10 fuel contains more petroleum-based gasoline than the E15, greenhouse gas emissions would increase during the summertime when higher ethanol blend is restricted. So there's a lot of push-pull action going on between, you know, are we going to be allowed to sell higher, higher blends of ethanol, not just on a regular basis, but on a year round basis. So there's still a lot going on with that. And right now the RFA is still trying to pretty much overturn that recent decision that happened on within the court of appeals. Well, Dawson, that is quite a story. And unfortunately I am all out of news for today. So what do you say we hop into the markets? I am all out of news as well. So I'm definitely on board with you there. And today corn got a little bit of an upwards action uh, compared to yesterday and kind of just getting right into it. The September contract closed 10 cents higher at 5.55 and three quarters. The December up six and a quarter to close at 5.53 flat. 
On to soybeans, the September contract closed three and three quarter cents higher at 13.35 and three quarters. The November up two and three quarters at 13.28 and a half. On to the wheat complex, Chicago September wheat closed four and a half cents lower at 7.12 and three quarters. The December down three and a, three and a half cents to close at 7.25 and a quarter. On to the livestock market, a lot of red across the screen right here uh, with the October cattle live cattle contract down $1.40 to close at $127.57. The December down $1.17 and a half to close at $132.77. On to the feeder cattle, the September contract closed $1.72.50 to close at $161.15. The October down $1.60 to close at $163.85. For the lean hog market, also down with the October contract closing limit down actually at $3 to close at $87.12. In the December down $2.65 to close at $80.87.5. Rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures, September, the September contract closed 43 cents higher to close at $16.47. The October up 34 cents to close at $16.88. And with that, Ashton, let's kick it to our conversation that we had with Kevin with Case IH. Well, this interview is long awaited. We're talking about the right to repair legislation and talking to Kevin Brenneman, who is the director of service for Case IH North America, about what they're doing to kind of fulfill some of the needs of those in the industry when it comes to the right to repair legislation. So, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So before we get started really diving into the right to repair, let's hear a little bit more about what you do as the director of service. What does that really mean? Sure, sure. So my, myself and my team, I have representatives that are field-based that work for Case IH around the U.S. and Canada, and they're assigned to our, our dealer network. And their responsibility is to support our dealers when it comes to servicing and repairing Case IH equipment and be there in a, in a supportive role uh, for, for customers. And Kevin, I want to talk a little bit more about the right to repair legislation. I know that you aren't, you know, the maybe the go-to at Case IH to talk about this, but this really isn't something that's, you know, quote unquote, new to the industry. There's been some talk about right to repair for some years now. So can you just kind of walk us through what's been going on as of late? Sure. I think the um, to give a little bit of background, you know, our, our, our customer base, you know, agricultural customers, you know, growers have always had the, the, the need and desire to be able to maintain and repair their own equipment. Right. Uh, you know, I grew up on a dairy farm. You know, we used to service and maintain our own equipment. And when it, when a job got bigger than we could handle, we would call out the local agricultural equipment dealer. And that really hasn't changed today. You know, it's, it's the culture of our customer. But what has changed over the last 20 years is we've added a lot of electronics, uh, software, and complexity to our products in order to allow our, our, our farm equipment to do some pretty amazing things. You know, we've got combines that have what we call uh, settings automation. I mean, they will set themselves to provide a clean grain tank sample and uh, minimize grain loss. We have guidance systems that'll drive a tractor, you know, straight across the field. And, you know, we were able to put seeds in the ground and fertilizer in the soil uh, 
and a lot more precision than we ever have before. But to do all that, we've added a lot of complexity to our agriculture of the equipment. And with that level of complexity, it's, it's harder for the average person with a good, strong mechanical aptitude to be able to figure out how to fix something and diagnose, you know, what's wrong and be able to identify what part needs to be replaced. So I think what's the, the driving force here is the rate of change and sophistication of agricultural equipment in the last 10 to 15 years. So, you know, we as KSAH have recognized this and, and obviously there are, um, our customers are starting to, you know, voice out this, this need for uh, more information and more more tools at their disposal to be able to do their own maintenance and repair. So, one of the things we we've, we've done, uh, we released it back in March of this year, is we created a customer version of what we call our electronic service tool, and it's it's a similar tool to what our dealers. Use use our case IH dealers use to diagnose and, and identify uh, use identify you know, what's going on in that electrical system identify what part needs to be replaced but we've kind of come up with a simpler version a customer version of that same tool and that's for sale um, through our case IH dealers and a, a customer can purchase a subscription to this tool and, and it's basically software you put on your laptop and you plug it into the, the vehicle's communication network and then use it as a diagnostic tool. And it also comes with all of the service manual information, the same service manual information that our, our dealerships use. So that's the first big step is providing some additional tools to our customers that do want to, to do their own maintenance and do their own repair. And the, the next step is obviously we have, to, we have to teach that customer base how to, how to utilize those tools. Kevin, you say that you've been dealing with this a, a while with, you know, trying to make sure your customers are well equipped to deal with their own repairs if they so want to do so. But it seems like the phrase right to repair is so controversial. And that's kind of why we're talking about it here today. But for case, does is there really much that would change with this new legislation if it were to go into full effect and kind of what how you would have to reapproach new things when it comes to working with farmers or working with, you know, legislators here moving forward? Yeah, we've tried to be proactive and we actually worked with our, our industry counterparts and, and came up with this uh, commitment. I think way back in 2018, uh, we came together as an industry and, and put together a commitment saying by 2021, we're going to you know, make these new diagnostic tools available to customers, which a lot of the, the large players in the agriculture equipment space have done. But that, that's the, the challenge is some of the right to repair legislation being raised goes much further than than what we've already done proactively. Um, you know, some of the things included in there include you know, equipment manufacturers requiring equipment manufacturers to provide service parts direct to customers at the same cost that we provide them to our our Case IH dealers. And that that's a that's a huge uh, request and and, it's, and where it's coming from is a lot of this right to repair legislation is the agriculture industry is getting kind of pulled in from a lot of other consumer products. You know, the, the one I always relate it to is, you know, if I damage the crack the screen on my iPhone, I have to go to an Apple store in order to get that screen replaced. There's nowhere I can purchase that, that cracked, you know, a replacement screen and replace it myself. 
So I think that's 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 how the agriculture industry is kind of getting brought in with a lot of the other consumer products. But the, the big difference is, uh, you know, you know, asking us as equipment manufacturers to supply parts at the same cost as our dealers that basically eliminates a. The potential for our, our dealers to make a living in, in the industry. And what what a lot of legislators don't realize is our our Case IH agricultural dealers. You know they're a, a small. A lot of them are, are small family owned business in rural America, and and they are the major employer for a lot of small towns in the middle of, of rural North America. And we have to be we have to be careful uh, with with this type of legislation that we don't start impacting their their ability to, to, to provide a, a business you know, in that atmosphere. Kevin, do you think that maybe the COVID-19 pandemic had anything to do with the pushing out of a lot more of these virtual type troubleshooting experiences like Case IH is implementing? Or is this, like you said, something that you've been dealing with for a while? Yeah, I, I don't think COVID has had much impact in this this space. Other other than you know, especially last year in, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, it was always more difficult to get people people face to face. And most of the, the repairs on agricultural equipment happen in the field service, what we call service calls, where a technician from the dealership goes out to the the customer, the farmer's place of residence, and they fix it in the field, right? Well, you're going to be right there with the operator. Uh, so a lot of those activities were, were more challenging last year without a doubt. But honestly, I think um, a lot of what we're experiencing around, around right to repair and, and, you know, the request to provide our customers with more tools and resources to do their own maintenance and repair, that, that, that's been there. I don't, I don't think the pandemic has significantly influenced it, you know, that is certainly good to hear, Kevin. And I just have one more question for you. Um, you know, do you have any other comments or anything about right to repair legislation or anything else that Case is trying to be proactive about when it comes to this? Yeah, we as a, a company have have reached out at the at the federal level, you know, with uh, President Biden's um, executive order and asking the FTC to do a review. Uh, which specifically included the agricultural industry related to right to repair. You know, we've, we've tried to, to voice out and then asked our, our case IH dealer network to, to voice out to their legislatures as well, trying to get everyone to understand there's, you know, our customer, or sorry, our, our case IH dealer network provide a, a vital support role with our customers. And it's very much a relationship business. And yes, we want to provide the tools and resources that allow our, our customers to, to do the, the maintenance and repair that they're, they're capable and desire to do. Uh, but if we pass legislation that, that hurts our, our, our case IH dealer's ability to provide a, uh, to a, continue to establish their business in, in, in these, these small towns in rural North America, that that'll have a significant impact on on our ability to even provide agricultural equipment to our customers. So there's a balance here. There's really a balance, and it's just helping our legislators understand that balance. So whatever legislation that gets created maintains that balance, so that you know the, the customer desire to do their own maintenance repair is is sustained, as well as 
you know, our, our KSIH dealer network is, is sustained at the same time. Well, Kevin, I just want to thank you once more for coming on today and talking about this with us. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. It was definitely a productive conversation. I'm glad that we got to know a little bit more about what Case IH is doing. Oh, you bet. It was a good conversation. Thank you. in there to Kevin for coming on and chatting with us. And after we stopped recording, Kevin talked to us about how important it is from his point of view and, you know, case IH that this legislation does have some benefits, but also could definitely hurt some of the smaller operators, those family owned service places. And, you know, like he said, kind of the middle of nowhere that often do help these people when their tractors break down, they're having some kind of a service issue. So we're definitely going to be keeping an eye out on this piece of legislation and really how it's impacting the world of agriculture. But while we're at it, we're also going to be having some awesome conversations and finishing out the week tomorrow talking about last week's wheat tour. So folks, you don't want to miss that. So be sure to tune in at agnewsdaily.com. And with that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.